Hello everyone, this is Saqib and uh, we have uh, closed another year in the tennis world with the Davis Cup uh, conclusion and uh, we have uh, Mert Atunga joining us again for Tennis with an Accent. It's a pleasure to host you, Mert. It's a pleasure to be here, Saqib. Yeah, the last conversation was really well received. I got some uh, inbox messages uh, giving rare reviews of your knowledge, so I'm looking forward uh, to this chat. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for whoever sent that message. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, you yourself have represented your country in the Davis Cup. So you can, you know, you were in a player's position yourself once and know how uh, meaningful this event is uh, for a lot of folks who represent. And today we saw David Coffin and, you know, there was a lot of emotions. He gave it his all and uh, not ex- uh, to shortchange Belgium, but in an expected result because France has more depth and they have more players close to the top of the rankings than Belgium does. So where does uh, Goffin's level uh, go from here? I know you were saying he's playing in the same uh, same kind of tennis that Agassi you know, uh, did years ago. The comparison is there. So what change did you see in Goffin in this late fall push, uh, which resulted in great weeks in London and Davis Cup? And where do you go from here? I think the, the biggest difference in Goffin, of course, we have to, we cannot uh, uh, start this conversation on what how Goffin has improved without mentioning the confidence factor. Uh, but the, tennis is an, is an individual sport, and when you gain confidence, is it's a lot, it's a lot more significant than in a team sport. And uh, Goffin's confidence has uh, has grown by leaps and bounds uh, late in the fall, simply because of the results that he has had. And, and let's also um, and in the fact that he's uh, Goffin is doing a good job of building on what he does best, he hasn't necessarily added any um, any extra strokes or any extra patterns to his regular style of play, but he does what he does even better. And and one one thing that he does well is uh, while he can still play defense and um, and run because he's a very quick guy, he can also take the ball early and attack and stifle his opponent. Now you can do those two things separately well. But it's one thing to, you know, it's another thing to uh, to to do it where you transition where you transition within the point from one to the other, and uh, this this is what uh, Goffin has been able to do uh, extremely well. There are some points during which he um, he starts out running ragged left to right, but then somehow that one opportunity that he gets, he steps into the baseline, and then pounds one down the line. Now putting his opponent on the run, and from that point on, he does he relentlessly keeps going, and he doesn't he doesn't give up. And that transition game has worked uh, very well for him, better than before, I have to say. And uh, is this game good enough to challenge a peak Djokovic or a Federer or even a Nadal in a best of five set match? Because uh, uh, in the past we've seen with Goffin that uh, correct me, you know, for my knowledge, but a lot of times the casual talk is he doesn't have the killer punch the power but with his movement and how he absorbs power and how he has a transition game you think this is a substitute for having major power and can he tackle those big guys in a in a meaningful match well i think to uh, your last question was can he challenge those guys in a meaningful match the answer to that is yes but the answer to your first original question which was in the slams uh, that's a bit different. I, so I'll answer your first question directly, and I will say at this point, no, I don't think so. I don't think he can challenge peak uh, top elite players in a three out of five set major setting, at least without stumbling twice or three times. Maybe he can uh, face them a few times and play them close, and maybe finally he can come uh, he can come over the uh, 
he can uh, so-called um, uh, jump over the barrier at one point and start beating them. But as of now, if uh, if you ask me how would GoFan do, even with this form currently, against uh, the top, uh, let's say, the caliber of big four in, in major events, and your question was, you know, peak Djokovic, peak Nadal, or peak one of the others, I don't think so. I don't think he. I don't think he's he's going to win a major in which uh, the top players are playing their best. So there's another question that probably will be related to what I just have asked you. Uh, in casual tennis forum discussions, there's a word counter puncher and uh, you know giving go fans frame. Where do you categorize him? Uh, does he have enough offensive strokes like a Nishikori, or uh, at best he's still a counter puncher redirecting power? No, he's 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 a counter puncher. There's there's no doubt about that that he can counter punch. In other words, you know, a ball that's coming hard back at hard at him, he can be on his back foot and still generate a lot of power. And I think the first match against uh, Puy on on Friday was a very good demonstration of that. He was able to absorb Puy's power and on many rallies and and stick it right back at him at uh, at, at at more power. And uh, I would not uh, put him in the same category as Nishikori in that sense. I think I think Gofen does that a bit better. So uh, yes, he's a counterpuncher. He he can generate power only if he takes the ball early. So if he's in a defensive position where he has to run corner to corner and stretch. I don't think he can generate a lot of power, but if he, if he can manage to stay on the baseline or a little bit before and get balls early, even at the cost of sometimes hitting um, shots close to half volleys where the ball is coming off the ground, then yes, he can definitely generate power. And uh, yes, on short balls, he can obviously generate power, but he needs to take the ball on the rise to generate power, uh, which some of the top players don't have to do. I mean, some, some of the top players can generate power even on a ball that, that's mid-pace on its way down from the bounce. But I believe uh, Goffin to generate power needs to take the ball on the rise. The tour right now, again, the consensus is uh, the surfaces have been slowed down because of the equipment and, you know, how bigger and stronger the ball striking has become. So for someone of Goffin's size or even Diego Schwartzman, some of these guys, does a slower, medium, fast court play into their strengths, or they would want, or they would prefer uh, quicker conditions? Uh, at least, what you see from far, you don't know what their preferences is. But uh, what do you make out of their playing playing styles? Yeah, no, I would, I would think that David Goffin would be just fine with a fast court. And uh, normally, you know, one wouldn't say that for a for a guy under six foot, although he's He's pretty close to six foot. He's five five ten or five eleven, I believe. But uh, for for players of that uh, type who rely on their footwork, um, you would normally say mid pace, slower pace courts. But I think in Goffin's case, it's a little bit different. He uh, he he. The ball, the, the 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 pace that the ball has as the, as it's coming to him is important to Goffin's power. That's how he generates his power. So I believe fast course would suit him fine. And, and, and I, think, I think we've seen that a little bit in, the, in, the, in London and in, and in Davis Cup. Indoor, indoor surfaces are always um, a little bit faster than, than outdoor surfaces. At least they, the, the bounce is more regular. So yes, I would believe that uh, it, would, it would be just fine with, uh, with Goffin, but not necessarily with all those types of players. I'm not sure that, uh, for example... The other player that you mentioned, Schwarzman, I'm not sure. I, I, in his case, I would think that he would still prefer clay court or slower, um, slower fast court or slower hard court. I'm sorry. 
because uh, Sakip, sorry to sorry to interrupt you because uh, because uh, uh, Schwarzman also hits the ball prefers to hit the ball sometimes when when it's on its way down and uh, he can take a big swing and generate the ball the, the pace himself. He's not necessarily an early ball a, a rising ball hitter, although he can do it if necessary. But uh, but whereas Goffin builds a lot of his game on on uh, on taking the ball early and rushing his opponent into into errors or into making bad decisions. Hey, uh, before we uh, switch to there was another topic uh, which I want to bring up because a bunch of us were discussing this on Twitter today, and one is uh, you know what you already mentioned, players under six feet, which is uh, not the norm at the top of the ranking unless you're an exceptional like or Agassi. So uh, Nishikori and Goffan are the two names, and Nishikori, uh, according to me at least, plays more aggressive brand of tennis. He's attacking more. So uh, the kind of strides Goffan has made, uh, is it clear to you that he's uh, currently the best uh, non uh, in the game, or you still think that title belongs to Shikori despite injuries? Um, sorry, Sakib, repeat the last uh, 15 seconds again because it, it got broken up and I couldn't quite hear the, the end. Yeah, no, no problem. Sure. So, uh, you know, I was part of a few discussions uh, leading up to this event and even today who the best uh, non six footers are. And I think as talented as an aggressive Kei Nishikori is, I think Goffan has made some serious strides and he's won enough matches. Uh, but the jury is still out uh, who's the best uh, non-six-footer. So in your opinion, uh, who do you think has the most complete game of uh, the top men who are under six feet? No, I would, I would, still, I would still go with Nishikori to, if, the, if the question is who, who, has, um, who has a more complete game or who has, the more, who has more talent or who has uh, the capability to go further. I would still say Nishikori. But the problem here is, um, unfortunately, it's... When you put Nishikori against players like Goffin uh, and others who get to play all year round, it's 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 a bit like comparing apples to oranges simply because not 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 because of their game but or or their size, but simply because Nishikori is battling another opponent that's that's quite fierce and that's that's injuries and uh, and the other players do not battle other players do not battle that as bad, and uh, it's not like Goffin hasn't been injured either, but Nishikori is, is, has a pattern of getting injured. And stopping his progress, progress, and you know we can, although a different style of player in terms of injury, we can add Milos Raonic into that group too. You know those are the type of players that uh, that that get to a point and maybe are about to get over the hump, but then an injury comes along and they have to retire, and they they need a month or two or more to recover, and then they have to sometimes scratch and start all over again. So I I think if 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 we had a healthy Nishikori. Throughout the last two years, I, I certainly believe that Nishikori would have been, and I know we can't make history with if and would haves, but since we're talking hypothetically, uh, I would I would argue that if Nishikori didn't have to deal with inju- injuries, he would be further along now than uh, than uh, than Puy or uh, or Goffin. You know, if we were going to talk about two guys that played today. Okay, so Pui is the other guy that I was going to ask you about. And uh, he, you know, won a fifth uh, rubber to clinch this tie, which is, you know, a lot of pressure, even though he was supposed to win sometime. Those are more tricky matches when, you know, you're playing for your nation, your team. And, uh, you know, last time you were on the podcast, we did mention a little bit of uh, Luca Pui. So is this a uh, good enough uh, launch pad for his career to start, as Yannick Noah pointed out, or... This is just one match, and you know we can't say too much going into 2018 about Luka Pui. 
No, I think it's somewhere in between. I mean, Yannick Noah was speaking emotionally, of course, at that time, and 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 he would like he would like this match to be the launch pad for uh, for Luca Pui's career, uh, of course, under uh, you know in a, in a team that he was captaining. But I think I think Pui's career got launched when he beat Rafael Nadal, in the, in the and the, that that was the moment that his career la- launched. And uh, but now this is of course a, a huge step, you know, to go out and win in five sets for your country. There's no, there's no, uh, mo- there's no more pressure in a, in a, in, a, in tennis than than the setting of a deciding rubber in a Davis Cup tie. And uh, especially when you play supposedly at home and you're supposed to win and Pui was the favorite going into it. And uh, he didn't, he didn't, um, he didn't tremble once. I mean, he, he literally, you know, rode right through the match with, with a cool head. And uh, this is the type of win that will definitely stay with him and then bring him to the next level. Uh, as far as launching his career, once again, it got launched before when he beat Rafael Nadal, if, if we want to point to a certain moment. But yes, I'm expecting, uh, I, I'm expecting big things from Puy. I've been a fan of Puy since his junior days in France. And uh, and, and Sakib, I, I tell you, that when we're considering that he's, uh, he's, tw- he's, he's in his early 20s, he's got, a, he's got good fundamentals, sound technique, he can He has a bit of an all-around game, and uh, and he's a cool-headed guy on the court. He he reached two major quarterfinals already, and I think it's not unfair to now expect Puy to to do some big things uh, from 2018 forward. I mean, he needs to win titles and in and I mean big titles, and he needs finals, finals and titles in big tournaments. Since I know you, you've been a coach at this level at the WTA level, you've also you know, consulted for Davis Cup team. How important uh, is a confidence for a player for the coaching job? Because you know we know all the talent in the world that Luca Pui has, and he's had like, <coughs> excuse me, a nosedive in confidence. So, what does a coach's role become when a player is going through an emotional roller coaster sometime when you set about a match and does it carry over really as we talk, as we hear on TV? And, and how instrumental is a good coach at the time? Well, I think in a, in a setting like Davis Cup, where you don't necessarily work full time with the player, then the, uh, the the mental aspect and the confidence aspect uh, take the forefront. In other words, as a coach, you need to nurture the confidence of the player, and um, and also one the way I used to approach it when I captained the Davis Cup team, and, and also just uh, I think most coaches will agree that. Uh, that you have to make the player feel like you're there for him or for her, regardless of uh, of the situation, and that um, and that if things don't work out, at least for a while during the match, that you are still with them and and behind them no matter what. And uh, the, 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 that's how that's how confidence uh, works. And sometimes you, you know he may play a bad set, but you need to keep working in, in, into his mind that uh, that it doesn't matter that he played a bad set. You know that he's a good player. You know he can do it, and that you have confidence and you and you trust uh, and you trust his judgment and 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 make him feel like the the identity that he showed on the court during a bad bad patch or a bad sequence is not his true identity, and that you are aware of that, and so are his teammates, and and give him this give him a sense that you are. Um, that that uh, you are his family, that he's part of that family, and it doesn't matter that uh, it's, it, it doesn't matter that he may he may um, he may uh, perform badly for a short period of time. That you know deep down that he can pull it off, and you and that's the feeling that you have to work work in him. 
Now, of course, things get easier when when you have a good when he has a good start, like like Puy did in his match, and then you can continue to uh, to work that uh, to work that in him. But as far as tactical adjustments go, if there's something very clear in the match that's that's going the wrong way, such as a bad pattern or such as a bad decision that that the player keeps making over and over again, that you have to, of course, then alert them to it. You know, you cannot make big changes. You cannot ask a, a, a baseline player to all of a sudden play serve and volley. But you can ask a baseline player to be more aggressive on the return, on the second shot, if he gets his first serve in, if so far he has been content to just hit that ball, hit that second ball to a corner and start the rally. You can make little adjustments like that within his uh, his potential. However, um, the, the, as far as however that's that comes secondary. The primary factor is still what I mentioned in the beginning. You have to make the player feel like you are sure of his of his potential and on uh, and on on the on the level of his um, on the level of his play. And you got to let him know that uh, that he needs to play sometimes for himself. Although it's a, it's a team match, it's you know you you are you have you're carrying the responsibility of playing for your country, that you and and his teammates and the family close to him, his coaches, we you know that they all know his potential and they all believe in him, and he needs to just go out and improve to it for prove it to himself and not worry about proving it to others. Yeah, it's a very insightful uh, way of uh, explaining uh, for the audience here, and even myself. Uh, similar question, uh, but different scenario. Say, uh, Marin Cilic and Dominic team, you know, they both had uh, uh, not the end, you know, at the World Tour final that they would have envisioned. And their tennis definitely suffering through some confidence when they get, you know, leads and they just don't seem to close out. So, uh, what does a coach tell a player, you know, when they when the coach knows clearly that his player, but but a lot of time the tennis is just a mental model. So it's, uh, my question is, is coaching really also a lot of mental? Are you working on that part or because when the tennis is there, uh, what kind of adjustments or you know improvements you can uh, make so you contribute in a positive note towards the player's uh, mental strengths or weaknesses? Yes, there there are two levels to 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 uh, to your question. I, uh, in my opinion, one is when uh, when a player plays well up to a certain round or, or 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 a big stage, and then and then crumbles and just performs badly throughout a match and just loses a match badly. And then there's the other case where your player has the has the capacity and and gets to a big stage and actually gets to an important moment, such as maybe a tiebreaker or maybe a set up and a break up. And then crumbles from that point. In other words, this, the, in other words, chokes. You know, for for the lack of a better word. And the, the, this the, now the second one, the, the choking case, is a bit um, is a bit more clear cut because you 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 must uh, make the player understand that choking or gagging, you know, whichever way you want to call it, is actually a, a half an inch away from playing your best. In other words, you didn't go out there and lose 6-0-6-1 or 1-1-1 in a 3 out of 5. You actually did some things very well against possibly a, a top player and you got to a position that you can win a set a set and a break or or even a match point or you know, I don't know, 5 love in the tiebreaker maybe and then and then you and then you choked it from there. But uh, there you can it's a very clear-cut case because now you can tell the player that uh, that the potential is there. 
and he can believe it too because because he's done it. He's he's gotten to that point, and that and that it's just that little last hump that he was unable to get over. I think that's a that, that's an easier case to um, to um, to to help the player with because eventually a player will at some point beat that if 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 they keep trying and if they if they don't give up. And I've to be honest, Saqib, I don't know of any. Uh, top players, and when I say top players, I'm talking about players that that play in the main draws of big events. I don't know of any top players who have consistently choked without an exception. At some point in their career, they do win a match or two, where uh, where they finally get over the hump. Now, once they get over the hump, you know you you hope that the percentage will go more in their favor, but uh, but you can you can eventually beat that. Now, as a coach, you would like you would like them to beat that as quick as possible. That is why you need to concentrate on what they did well up to that point. And hopefully you put them in front of the screen, you replay the few moments, not the large portion of the match where they played well, but the few moments and you show them what they did in what they did in those moments that they did not do in the large portion of the match coming to that point. So now the next time the player's on the court and they are in that position, then they need to understand the coach needs to needs to make them register that they need to continue doing what's right at the cost of missing. In other words, it doesn't help to hold back and, and change your strokes or do something different because now all of a sudden you don't think it's going to work because that's probably what they did last time. So you tell them that you're going to keep doing what they, did, what they did up to that point at the cost of missing the shot. So what if you miss the shot? You play the right game. And if you lose, you play. You, you lose playing it the right way. And, uh, and I'm willing to bet that uh, more than 50% of the time that the, the, the outcome will be positive. In the second case where, um, I'm sorry, in the first case where the player crumbles under the pressure on a big match type of situation, then you need to do some things differently leading up to the match. And as a coach, it's your job to, uh, to sell that to the player. In other words, maybe the player needs to prepare differently. Uh, wake up at a different time, uh, get to the site only 45 minutes before the match rather than two hours before the match, and, and, and maybe do some rope jumping right in the minutes leading up to the walk onto the court. You need to do something differently and sell that to the player that it's going to make a difference. You don't know for sure yourself. I, I can tell you this. You don't know 100% yourself that it's going to work, but you need to, you need to sound that you are 100% that it's going to work. And, and, and hopefully in one of those times, the player goes out and has a good start to the match and, and actually does well and then starts believing in that process. And that's how you build confidence. You don't always build confidence on tangible data. You sometimes build confidence on, on, um, on things that the player can believe in. I hope I made that clear. I'm not sure, uh, but but uh, it's it's a very tedious, uh, it's a very nu- nuanceful um, situation. No, you, you made your point really well. So let's go back uh, further in this illustration from my angle, and it's more of a question, uh, not to challenge any assertions you made. Uh, Dominic Team, you know, has blown uh, more than few matches this year where he had match points in the U.S. Hardcore Series, and then you know against Del Potro. So when the coach revisits this, I'm sure these are painful losses. Are you, as a coach? Uh, I, I don't know what Gunter Bresnik exactly said, but you know, if your player did that, so are you gonna just review the match points and see what particular pattern, or it just becomes clear? Sometimes your opponent played well, sometimes you know it could be a tight forehand or a double fault. So how do you separate that when a coach brings these kind of 
uh, notions because as fans, we always think that match stayed with team or player, extra player, you know, and I just want to pick you on that. The first thing you have to do is you have to understand yourself as a coach, what the perception of the player is. Is the perception of the player that, uh, that uh, at a, and I'm throwing out completely hypothetical situation see here. If maybe the player was leading um, a set in 5-3 and was serving, and maybe he double faulted twice in that game. And you you have to understand what the player's perception is of what happened. Perhaps the player is blaming those two double falls. But maybe you look at that whole string of three or four games right there and you notice some other things. Yes, he double faulted twice, but at 5-4, maybe he had a four, he had a short forehand with which he went down the line, whereas previously in the match he's been going cross-court with it mostly. And what you need to get the player to first uh, do is to get out of the cocoon that of, of his of his perception where he's blaming a certain things, whereas you see some other things that happened. Okay, so once you once you put yourself and the player in the same wavelength, then you go back to then then you go back to to the tape, and and, and you would show the player first of all some of the points that uh, that he did uh, that he did well up to that point. And then you start playing those games from five three on, and you and when when you when he sees his double fault, she says yes, you double faulted, and that was a bad idea. Maybe maybe after after the first double fault and the second one, you should have put your first serve in just to not face the pressure of having a sec having to hit a second serve after you have already double faulted once. Yes, you could have done that differently, but what? But guess what? After you lost your serve and he came back to five or look what happened the next game. You were probably thinking about the double fault. And then you did this this 15 left point differently, this 40-15 point differently than what you have done prior to 5-3. And the player must understand that it's, a, it's his mental process that has changed at that moment and not just one shot or two. And, the, and, that's, the, and that's the approach that you need to take. In Dominic, in Dominic Team's case, for example, this would be this would not be that hard to do if uh, his coach would have to work that into his mind. Now, Dominic Team though has to go out next time and be able to show that uh, that IQ level of adjustment within the match. And uh, and personally, I believe that's one of the weaker points on the, of Dominic Team is that uh, sometimes he just gets on a machine-like process during a match, and I'm not sure that he thinks that thoroughly with each point or during the points or in between the points. And there, that's where a coach can also step in and have some sort of a process between the points. Once the point ends, spend five seconds uh, you know, in your mind analyzing the last three or four shots, what happened in those shots. And then the next time, in the next point, if you face the exact same situation, the same forehand or the same return to the middle of the court, do something differently. And this is, of course, this takes practice, Sakib. It's, it's a little bit strange. Just like a forehand developing, a, say, a backhand slice takes practice. You have to repeat it over and over again. You have to literally practice your mind. And, 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 and you know, and this is when in, pra- in, in practice matches you can play a lot of sets or even in tournaments. You can say, look, you know, you, he, this is where it starts. Maybe in your first match in that same situation you won't be able to pull it off. But you keep pushing and pushing, and sooner or later, after practicing this mental process, it becomes part of the player's personality, and that's when you're on your way to to winning. Okay, so uh, just from my own uh, 
interest in this question as a you saying like Dominic teams uh, not not a knock on him but uh, the tennis IQ sometimes is not of the highest caliber especially the company he's keeping at the top of the rankings so is it possible for a player to get that far and uh, what I'm saying is was the IQ always questionable or is IQ only questionable for making certain adjustments no I would say well first of all Dominic team is uh, you know when we when we say on court IQ we're obviously talking about um, you know his decision process within a point or because uh, he could because he could very well be the most intelligent guy ever that's uh, right right so so yes his on court IQ I think uh, when when you talk about on court IQ is when a point develops a certain way and you have a certain shot and at that moment you make a split second decision to do something differently than you have done before or to to um to direct the ball in a different pattern than you have done that before and i don't i don't think dominic team does that no he's he, because i see him make a lot of bad decisions you know when there are some players who make good decisions but simply make errors but team makes just just makes some bad decisions and i think sometimes when he get when he's on the losing end or he's trailing or things are not going well he gets down mentally and simply starts thinking that uh, you know hitting the ball harder is going to solve things, and and it's not going to solve things if you try to hit the ball harder from you know four meters behind the baseline on a high bouncing ball. You got to put that back in play, and then maybe in the next shot, if you can step on the baseline or inside, then you go for it. But you see, you got to be able to think that during the point, and I'm not sure that team is team is doing that. And this is why it's a it's a mental practice process that I talked previously that uh, that he needs to engage in if it, and 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 it will it will eventually improve because because uh, you know it's not like his he, he, team is a highly intelligent person individual so he can he can work that into 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 match play. Okay, last time you were around, you you know you were really again uh, talking about the same stuff, and I was pretty intrigued listening, you know, and I had to listen to the podcast again because a lot of stuff you said I had never heard before. Uh, so I remember uh, we talked about Dimitrov, and you said you know he has more of a process where his uh, tennis IQ uh, shines through uh, the process. So I remember Dimitrov not in the recent past, but maybe a year or you know year and a half ago, he would get engaged in these rallies where he was. Uh, the better player he was dictating, but all of a sudden, in, uh, you know, in cricket, there's a term we use, no man's land. He would get caught on the court where he should have won the point, but he's somewhere between the baseline and the net, and he's doing an awkward shot. Did you ever see those things, and do you think those things have changed, or is it just something it was once in a blue kind of a moment with Dimitrov? No, no, you are you are right. I can completely agree with you. And, the, and, the, and I may have touched on that from a different angle last time we talked, uh, I think for for a while, for uh, for for a period of two years, I'd say, following his um, his Wimbledon semifinal, I think Dimitrov got caught in in the in where he was trying to improve all facets of his game at at once. And when you're a guy like him, uh, who's got plenty of talent and who's, who does have every shot in the book, you can get caught in that process, and then you start developing a certain identity on the court that doesn't really correspond to anything in other words are you a are you an aggressive player are you a a, a rallier are you a scrambler uh, are you a serve and volleyer can you are you a fast court player slow court player and 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 Dimitra was in between all those uh, circles and those circles were not uh, crossing each other by any means to where you can be at one spot and be all of those at the same time that that's that's very hard to pull off 
and uh, and and I felt that uh, Dimitrov needed to decide whether he wants to be an aggressive player, take balls early, come in, uh, use his talent at the net when necessary, hit big serves, and just uh, develop that aggressive personality. Or um, when I say personality, I mean aggressive identity on the court as far as his play goes. Or was he going to be a, a, a baseliner, a solid baseliner who outlasts his opponents, sometimes uses his touch, drop shots, angles, and outlasts, uh, um, wears his opponents out, uh, while still coming in once in a while, only when the, when things look right. I think he needed to choose one or the other. For for a couple of years, he got stuck in between. And I believe um, at the beginning of, the, of this year, or if not during the off season, maybe during December last year, I, I don't have I don't have I don't know this for a fact because you know I wasn't there watching his practice but I believe that uh, that he did he finally chose to go the aggressive way which was the correct decision well either of them would have been correct but this was definitely the correct decision if you watch Dimitrov this year he's he's been very aggressive taking balls early it started with his match against Rafael Nadal uh, in the, in Australian Open since everybody pretty much saw that match they can relate. He was being extremely aggressive from the baseline, going for a shot, trying to trying to overpower Rafa, and and succeeded in in, in for 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 a long periods of time in the match, and and from there on, I think he stuck with it, and once you start discovering your identity and you start playing in that direction, you start embracing that identity more and more, and you start gaining confidence saying that you can exist within that that identity and reach your best. And and I believe for example in the in the London tournament um that identity also showed. He was he was he was still an all-court player, but he was his goal his, his main goal was to uh was to not let his opponent dictate the point, have him dictate the point, win a lot of points off his serve or off the next shot after his serve. And, and and come to the net when when the ball is short and uh, and I think Dimitrov is has has high IQ so he when he plays within his identity the decisions that he makes are not only correct but they work whereas before he was still making sometimes good decisions but because he's caught in between playing an all court type of game that he was sometimes he would he would try to come in when he when he didn't need to and get caught in no man's land, just like you say, and you could see those things. But that was because he was see that he hasn't. He's trying to play without an identity at that at that time. Whereas now lately he's got an identity in which uh, he feels comfortable, and then the good decisions that you make also turn into good points. Okay, yeah, I I agree because uh, the new version of Dimitrov, I haven't seen him stuck in the indecision mode. He's you know. He's progressed and the results are there. All right, before we continue... If, if, if you don't mind me adding one more thing. Um, when you uh, when you watch Dimitrov in London, maybe you, maybe you notice this. You know, a lot of times when, during his um, low-confidence periods, when Dimitrov would miss shots or would, would miss shots that he should make, you could see it in his face. He would get down a little bit. Whereas in London, if you noticed, um, even, even on the points that he lost... He still immediately, you know, uh, brought his racket, played with the strings, got the next ball, and got ready to play. Asked for the towel. You could see his whole body language uh, turning to positive, simply because even though you miss when you play within your identity and start feeling comfortable with it, and and you know what exactly what it is, 
you start believing in your decisions even more. And even if you miss in between, you still know you made the right decision and it's not going to deter you from your goal. And that's what was happening to Dimitrov. Sorry, I cut you in the middle there. No, no, that's, that's all good. So, yeah, I know, uh, again, we, are, we have gone a little over than what we agreed. But uh, before we conclude this, uh, just let's go back to Davis Cup. Uh, Joe Willie Sanga was uh, on the squad. You know, he won one match and is a Davis Cup champion now. Uh, how do you see his career? I know he's someone who's always been talked about who did not get a major win because he played in the wrong era. Is he one of the most talented guys uh, of this era that uh, who did not get a major? Uh, has a window completely closed on Joe Willisonga? Well, you, when you think about players like Burdich, David Ferrer, and um, and and Joe Wilfrid Songa, who played during the era during this era and did not get um, did not get a major, yes, you can partly blame it on the fact that they played along with uh, with uh, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and and Murray. But it can't. That can't be. Uh, that can't be all. Your uh, uh, laying your your. You know that can't be the only foundation on which you're laying your excuse, because uh, Wawrinka did it, Chilic did it, Del Potro did it. So it's not like a, it, it's not an impossibility. And Songa, in terms of pure talent, uh, is definitely up there with those guys. But uh, the, yeah, he hasn't been a, he hasn't been able to do it. I don't think this uh, this Davis Cup uh, victory or holding the Davis Cup changes that much. Uh, first of all, I don't see Davis Cup as an individual title anyway. I was I never subscribed to the notion that uh, a player's greatness should also be measured by uh, a Davis Cup title. In other words, a, a great player who's never won a Davis Cup title that should count against that player. I, I never believed in that because Davis Cup. Uh, Mathematically, logically, and um, and 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 emotionally, is not an individual win. Uh, you know, in, in the, it, it's it's officially a team win. So yes, Songa did win one point for his team, and he was part of the team. But I don't think this Davis Cup title for France necessarily adds something to his confidence or to his uh, identity enough to the point where now all of a sudden he's going to be a force to win a major. He's not going to be a force to win a major now than he has been in the past. What he needs to prove is he can beat two or three elite players in a row in a major. That's what he has not done. He has beaten one uh, in the past and reached the final. He has beaten one in the past and reached the semifinal. But then, but then he, uh, he stumbled. And, uh, you know, a great example is the French Open where he beats Federer and then loses to Ferrer in the semis in, in Roland Garros. And, uh, and same, same thing happened in, in his first final back in 2008, I believe, in the Australian Open. He blew Nadal off the court and then lost to Djokovic. And, um, you know, that's what he needs to prove. And um, I, I think it's going to be a very tall order for him. I'm not sure that I, I, I'm not all that I'm, I'm going to. I'm going to lean to the side that uh, he's going to close out his career without a without a major title. Yeah, that probably makes uh, two of us a uh, great player. But yeah, it's sometimes, like you said, uh, the big four cannot be the only reason uh, why someone has not succeeded because others have. So, Mert, that was another excellent chat. Uh, uh, let's record another one uh, if you have time before the end of this year, and then we can do a preview in that show for what's coming in 2018. Sure, I'd love to. Thank you, Sakim.